1 Samuel 28. We covered the first couple of verses already, but it helps. This was a couple of weeks ago. It just helps set the scene. So remember, David has finally determined in his heart, in his own internal conversation, that there's nothing better for him to do than to leave his tribal land of Judah and go and dwell amongst the Philistines. So he's presented himself and his 600 men and their households to Achish, uh, the king of Gath, one of the Philistine city-states, essentially as a mercenary, and that's what we watched in that chapter. The end, uh, at the beginning of chapter 28, setting the scene that it happened in those days, and again, this is in the last one year and four months of David's season before he is lifted up to the position of king after Saul dies. But it happened during these days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war. The purpose is to fight with Israel. And Achish, remember, he's the king of Gath. This is a Philistine king, says to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. So David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardsmen forever, keeper of my head. Now, you got a a lot of times, it is very helpful to imagine the word of God in a movie reel in your head. Because again, this this is a high level of drama that is being presented in David's life and the position that he has willingly placed himself and his men in. And here you have a king coming to David and says, David, the Philistines are gathering to war against your nation, against your country, and you know you're going out to war with me, right, buddy? And David says, doesn't have agreement, but it leaves it, you know what I can do. You know what I'm, me and my men are capable of. And Achish and his relationship with David, David, you are going to be my guardsmen forever. So Achish is telling himself lies. David's telling himself lies. David's telling Achish lies. Really messed up, right? And now the scene and all of that tension shifts. And these next couple of verses set up the rest of the scene for us. So verse 3 says, Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. So here's what is being set for us. We're being reminded that Samuel has already died. We were told that earlier in chapter 25 when Samuel died, but it's being brought to the present because it's a dominant theme of Saul's behavior. So that's being set up for us. Samuel is dead and he's buried. And he's been in that position for a long time, going to be important. The other piece of information that we are given is Saul and his kingly and administration responsibilities. At some point in history, he had put out of the land anybody that was defined as a medium or a spiritist. So the, the word for spirits here, this is the idea of a familiar spirit. 
And what that means is in, again, the surrounding cultures of the day, and this is something that God told the nation of Israel to have nothing to do with, a familiar spirit is a, a living being like you and me wanting to have a conversation with a dead relative. There's, some, there's a familiar spirit, so not identified as a demon, but very much part of the occult and demon activity for sure, but a human being is attempting to go through an individual and communicate with the dead. That's the idea of a spiritist. Same idea with a medium, but the, the word in Hebrew is this idea of necromancy, where this individual, whether they're going to be possessed by a spirit and speak on behalf of the dead to an individual, or they're just conducting the seance. So again, this is all information that's gonna play into today's passage. So we're being told at some point in Saul's obedient history, he had sought to put these certain individuals out of the land. More likely in that relationship with Samuel, as Samuel is advising Saul on what he ought to be doing as a king. Now, ultimately what we're being presented in this passage is when a human being wants to communicate with somebody who has passed on, who has died. Why? But what are you seeking? What would an individual be seeking? Seeking some kind of knowledge, right? There's, I miss this person. How's this person doing? This person used to give me counsel. I honor my mother, mother and my father and my grandparents. I need grandpa's advice on what I should do in this situation. That's the purpose. There is some knowledge that an individual is seeking. The other is power. Somebody needs power in, in a relationship, in a circumstance, so they're going to seek after this tradition and occultism and their beliefs that through giving a sacrifice, through communicating with the dead, I am going to receive some kind of power in my life. God defines this behavior as it's something that defiles the human soul that the, the intentional pursuit of spiritual beings that are in rebellion and opposition to God, there's something wrong with that, right? The spirits that God has created, those who are in rebellion to him, there's a broken relationship there. And if you're pursuing these voices in your life, you are seeking to go around God, skirt that relationship with God, and press into that which he says is unholy, is not of him. And that's why he says it's something that defiles your mind and your body and your soul and all those practices that are associated with it. And not only does he call it a, something that would defile your relationship with him, he also d defines it as prostitution. So the imagery that we have of a man seeking a relationship outside of that, of his wife in marriage and going and pursuing a prostitute, God is using that imagery. This is what you were essentially doing if you're pursuing these individuals and these dead individuals and these spirits and all the traditions. So this is gonna become very important as we process through the passage. It's going to be, it's, it's a major point to the passage, and that's why it's setting the scene of the, the topic to begin with. So Saul had put all of these individuals out, but ultimately, just keep in your mind that um, the reason that people have been trained in this, the reason that individuals 
are going around is because the true and living God isn't meeting a need in some fashion, which is what we're going to watch in Saul's life. Again, don't think that this is just something historical. Julie and I were driving down, what, the Sugar Hill Road that goes out to Sugar Hill in Buford yesterday. Right on the side of the road, here's this sign in front of this house that's totally decrepit, but if you want your psychic reading, here you can go into this house. And it's just totally illogical to me, because if it was true, don't you think that would be a mansion on a hill if this person actually knew what they were talking about? But they don't. Anyways, there's a whole bunch of ways, and we'll, we'll talk about this stuff as we go through this morning's chapter. So, Samuel's dead. Saul had put out these individuals from the nation of Israel, and now the Philistines have gathered. So the, these five city-states, they've gone to the north and into uh, towards the east a little bit in the Jezreel Valley. Uh, Megiddo is on the west of this valley, so the, the term Armageddon, the Mount of Megiddo, where this last battle is going to occur, is in this same valley that's being discussed. Uh, Saul and the Israelites are on the south on Mount Gilboa. Uh, Shunem is going to be on the north side of this valley where the Philistines have gathered together. And the understanding militarily is that the Philistines have gathered together for the intention of cutting off the northern tribes from Saul's authority. So Saul is gathering all of the nation of Israel, all the tribes together to do battle against the Philistines. Now, we sit with Saul in verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So major... We've been watching Saul's character and his progression away from God. We've watched God interact with Saul multiple times, giving him that space of repentance, calling him back to himself. Here, Saul, just like we watched David in chapter 27, David's having a conversation in his heart and not pursuing the Lord, and that lead, his own heart leads his behavior. We're watching Saul do the exact same thing, but at the same time, a contrast between David and Saul. We're told Saul is looking at his circumstance, he is with his army, and he sees the Philistine army, and in his heart, he is trembling. He doesn't know what to do. Very easily to, easy to understand his emotion, right? But Saul does something that David didn't do in the last chapter. We're not told that David, in the thoughts of his heart, went and inquired of the Lord and what he was supposed to do. And here, we're told that Saul did inquire of God, but God chose not to say anything to Saul in response, either through prophets, either through the priest with the Urim and the Thummim. Any, any other way that Saul would hear from the Lord, the Lord has been silent to Saul. Now, again, this is a progression in his relationship with God. We've seen multiple times where Saul has drifted away. First, he disobeyed God through offering a sacrifice on his own, doing something that he ought not to do, standing in a position that was not his to stand in. And we have a breaking there in his relationship with God through his disobedience. Later on, you have his last interaction with Samuel was he is falling down on the ground and he grabs Samuel's robe and it tears. And in that, Samuel tells Saul that God is tearing the kingdom away from Saul and giving it to his neighbor, a man who has a heart after God. 
So there's multiple snapshots that we've seen historically where Saul has uh, walked in his flesh. We've seen him pursue religious behavior multiple times. Here he's doing what he ought to do, which is to go and seek the true and living God. But the true and living God is being silent to him. Now hold on to this thought. We're not going to go there yet, but we're going to end up getting into the New Testament. But before we get there, I'm going to take you to a passage where it says in this circumstance, Saul did not inquire of God. So is there a conflict in the Bible? And no, there's not. And this is why the, the other verse gives to us this piece of information. The way that Saul is seeking God is in his broken relationship with God. He is pursuing God only for knowledge, only for power. He isn't pursuing God in humility. He's not pursuing God in repentance and for reconciliation. His relationship has been broken with God. And in his pursuit, as he is now praying to God, why would God answer Saul if their relationship is broken? And that's what's being described to us for Saul. So now if you're Saul, what do you do? You're still afraid. You've done what you thought you're supposed to do religiously, and your God has not answered you. What do you do? Do you sit and wait, or do you figure it out? If your relationship is broken with God, if you are not trusting him, more than likely, you're going to go and try and figure it out on your own, and that's always a warning. If you have asked God something and you think he's being silent and he's not giving you an answer, you wait. Don't ever be afraid to answer that question. Lord, is, is there something? Are we off? Are we good? He'll be, he's always honest and true and gentle and kind. He always leads us to repentance and reconciliation if, if something is off. And through his Holy Spirit, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. He will speak to you. You know when something is broken between you and the Lord and confession and repentance and a washing is necessary. And at the same time, you know when, you know what? The Lord and I are good. I trust him. I don't understand what's going on here. I've asked God a question and he hasn't given me an answer. In that position, wait. Yes, you go through asking others and knocking on those different doors, turning to, the, turning to the word, but you wait and be patient. Saul, not so much. Verse 7, Saul says to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire after her. So instantly, again, you can see the hypocrisy in Saul. We're going to see it again. His pursuit of the God of Israel seems to be on every level just a religious tradition and there is no true relationship with Yahweh because he immediately turns in all right God is silence go find me a medium which is a group of people that he had already put out of the nation right he knows this is bad he knows this is something that he shouldn't do but in his heart in his own reasoning he's going to do it anyways so a servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. And again, this is all in the same Jezreel Valley. So Saul disguised himself, put on other clothes, and he went, and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. 
Then a woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my wife to cause me to die? So she's still doing her, her job on the side, right? But she's trying to feel out this guy that's in front of her. Hey, Saul says, I can't do this anymore. Are you trying to kill me? And he swears, look at Saul, verse 10. He swears by Yahweh. Again, just this kind of, it's like, I swear to God, I'm telling you the truth. That's what Saul is doing. There's no relationship here with his creator. He, these words are just coming out of the mouth. I swear to God, I'm not going to hurt you. As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Again, ultimately, this is what uh, the commandment of God, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. This is the root of what it's getting to. Saul is taking the name of Yahweh in emptiness. There's no relationship. There's no connection. There's no power. He's just giving this cultural, religious, traditional oath to this woman. Hey, as Yahweh lives, I'm, nothing's going to hurt. I'm not going to hurt you. Saul's not going to hurt you. The woman said, great. Now that that business portion has been dealt with, who shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And again, this is why it's setting up the death of Samuel in the beginning. Saul's got nowhere to turn, so he's turning to something that he's learned in the environment around him. I need to talk to the dead guy, because the dead guy, when he was alive, he gave me good advice. Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is this form? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived it was Samuel, and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. All right, are you bothered? Is this weird? Super weird. Is this true? Absolutely. And most people that sit in, again, like the, the, the palm readers and the tarot cards and the horoscopes, most of it's just junk, right? People are just good at reading others and, you know, they've been trained in something. But there is a true power out there. There really is a spiritual realm. These fallen angels really are able to cross over that veil to different degrees. Even messengers of God, angels, can appear in the form just like you and me. Super weird. We have very little understanding. But our God who created the heavens and the earth is a spirit. This word that this woman sees a spirit come up ascending out of the earth, the word is Elohim. It's, it's the word that is translated for God across the Old Testament. But Elohim, it's God's plural. But this word, it, the context defines the definition. Is Elohim talking about the true and living God, or is Elohim talking about a spiritual creature that the true and living God created? He is the God, singular, of God's plural, this whole spiritual realm of beings that he created. So this woman is saying she has seen this spirit, this that, again, is using this Hebrew word Elohim, come out of ascending up from down, right? So you got to sit in the understanding of Jews at this time in regards to death. 
So hell in the Old Testament is called Sheol. So it's a singular word, and we're going to get into a New Testament definition where Jesus is going to give us a little bit of description of where Samuel was at this time. So Samuel is dead. His body and his spirit have been separated. His body, his flesh is rotten off. His bones are probably in a bone box at this time. His spirit has gone to Sheol. And in this seance, the Lord is allowing Samuel to rise up. The woman's freaking out. Saul's freaking out. He gets down on and stoops his face down to the ground. All of this is worked out. And I titled this morning's message Disturbed because it's disturbing. But it comes out of what Samuel has to say. Samuel says to Saul, yeah, what do we, you know, is he kind of floating there like a ghost? I don't know. Is he in his flesh? I don't know. Why is the spirit wearing a mantle and a robe? I don't know. I don't get any of this. Super weird. You figure it out and you come tell me. So Samuel says to Saul, why are you disturbed? Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore. Crazy, neither by the prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Again, just look at Saul's heart. Saul knows, Saul knows his relationship with God is broken. He knows that God has removed his Holy Spirit from him. He knows that God has sent a distressing spirit upon him. He knows that this is his life context, and he knows the exact reasons why, and he does nothing to humble himself and get his relationship with God right. I've told you multiple times before, I hope Saul's in heaven because he waffles back and forth in so many different scenes, but I've, I have a major question mark in regards to how he stained his soul and whether or not he ever got right with God. This is the last day of his life, and this snapshot makes me think that he never turned. Super sad, because he had every opportunity. Samuel says to him, why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? Great question, Samuel. And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. Exactly what I have communicated to you from the Lord is exactly what's happened in your life, Saul. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And Sheol is what he's saying. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. So here in this, this whole weird scene, the Lord allows Samuel to be disturbed, the word that he is using, to come and communicate prophetically once again to Saul what is true, even though Saul is doing this through occultish, demonic, prostituting, and defiling ways. Verse 20, immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him. 
for he had eaten no food all day or night. So again, he's, he's fasting, thinking that his neglect of the flesh, he is making a sacrifice to God, to whatever, you know, to the medium that he's pursuing. I'm not doing something according to this religious tradition. Therefore, I deserve the payment for Samuel to be brought up is the whole point that he's fasting. Verse 21, the woman came to Saul and said that he was severely troubled and said to him, look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice. And I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which he spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength and go on your way. What does all this mean? I really don't have a clue, nor does anybody else. Why is this medium of indoor, given this hospitality to Saul? He's the king. She doesn't want to die. He just heard some bad news. He refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants together with the woman urged him and he heeded their voice there. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatty calf in the house and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. I have no idea what the end of that means. I have no application points for it. But we're going to back up into Samuel being brought up. So in the New Testament, so again, this just gets into this whole idea. This is disturbing, right? The whole idea that somebody who has died, again, flesh in the grave, spirit at this time in history, and we'll get into this in a minute, spirit is in Sheol, this Hebrew word, our word for hell, the Greek word for Hades. Is it weird that an individual can be brought up and ascend and communicate with the living? Absolutely weird. But in the New Testament, we have this scene that none of us consider weird when Moses and Elijah come and have a conversation with Jesus on Mount Tabor, which is in the same Jezreel Valley. Is that weird to you? Why is it not weird? Because it's Jesus, right? But in this scene, we are told that as Jesus takes Peter and James and John with him up on this mountain, And again, tradition tells us it's Mount Tabor, which is in this Jezreel Valley, that Jesus is transfigured. He transforms from his flesh as he is tabernacling as a man, and he becomes clothed in light because God is light. And James and John and Peter witness this. And we're told that they see Moses up from the dead, Elijah up from the dead, to have a conversation with Jesus. Now, we're not told what that conversation looked like, but in this, you know, Peter comes out of his mouth, you know, what, what, look at what we're witnessing and seeing. This is amazing. Let's build a booth for, you know, essentially a temple for Jesus and for Moses and Elijah. And what voice do they hear out of heaven? Your father's voice. This is my son. We're not talking about Moses and Elijah right now. Moses representing the law, the Torah. Elijah representing the prophets. Again, the word of God is being represented as Moses and Elijah are talking to the word of God, Jesus, the Messiah. 
This is my beloved son. And this is my only son. You, you listen to him, is the voice that the father is communicating to Peter, James, and John out of heaven. Fantastic scene, but we don't have any issue with it because it's Jesus. So we ought not to have any issue with this scene because, again, the father is allowing and sending Samuel to once again be his prophetic voice to Saul. Just like the father sent Moses and Elijah to be some kind of prophetic voice to the son. We're told in Revelation, the two witnesses who many believe to be Moses and Elijah, they will once again be sent in the future to be a prophetic voice in the culture for people to turn. And in the, in the scene, in, in with Jesus being transfigured, what is being communicated to the disciples, what is being communicated to us is for us to listen to the Son. Ultimately, what's being communicated to Saul in this scene is God has allowed it. Saul, listen to Samuel. Why? Because Samuel is being the voice of God to you. And what ought Saul to do in this moment? He ought to repent. He's on the ground, he's in pain, he's distressed, he's broken, he's separate, and he knows all of the reasons why, but he doesn't do anything to obey Yahweh. He just proceeds with his own behavior. So I want you to turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13. gives us a little bit more information about this scene in Saul's life. So this is 1 Chronicles 10, 13 says, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord. So Saul's death that we're going to see in a couple of weeks in Samuel, we're told that he died because of his unfaithfulness. The word means his disloyalty his infidelity, and his fraud because he had committed what he had committed against the Lord, how he acted unfaithfully against the Lord. He was untrue, and he violated the Lord's legal obligations in that relationship. It says, because he did not keep the word of the Lord. He had very specific things to do, instructions that were given to him, and he chose not to do it and keep it. And then it says, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he, being the Lord, killed him, being Saul, and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So look at what the word of God says here in regards to Saul. So we're told in Samuel that Saul's first, as his heart was trembling, that he went and inquired of the Lord. And here we're told he didn't inquire of the Lord. So again, there, there's not a conflict, but it's giving us a description of Saul's religious, traditional, disobedient, doing it my way behavior kept him in a broken relationship. He did not have a healed relationship, a sacrificial relationship, a restored relationship. He's not, we never see him pursue the Lord like David pursued the Lord. Lord, my sin is always before me. Wash me, cleanse me. Don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And after we are right, then send me out into the tribes of Israel and into this world to teach others to love you. That was David's heart. Saul's heart, we don't see any of that. 
He knows he's broken. He knows he's defiled. He knows all of the reasons why. But again, and this, I'm repeating this this morning because we can find ourselves in the same repetitious cycle, knowing that you were doing something that is off, that God has told you not to do, and you keep doing it anyways. I know it's not you, but it's somebody else that you're thinking about right now. But the scene that we're in in 1 Samuel 28, it is listed as a final straw in Saul's life. God executes Saul through the means of war because Saul chose to inquire, to seek knowledge, to seek power, to go around God to get the answer that he wanted because he's got a question and he needs the answer and God, he is seen as a roadblock to that answer. So he goes around God to get the answer that he wants. And that is defined for us as the, again, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to say, in Saul's life, seeking a median for guidance. All right, turn to Luke chapter 16. And the reason that we're coming here is because Jesus has something to teach us about the realm of the dead. When we sit in the information that we have available to us about Sheol, about Hades, about hell, in the word of God, it's very, very limited. In the New Testament, it's super clear that what Jesus communicates about this spiritual holding place that those who are in obedience to God, they are on one side. Those who are in disobedient, disobedience to God are another side. And the contrast between those two is just as different as darkness and light. When Jesus defines the eternal separation from the creator for us, he uses all of our human senses. Hell is defined as a dark place talking about our eyes. What is seen is no light because God is not there. God is light. What is heard, it's not peaceful. It's weeping and gnashing and grinding of teeth and anger. What is felt is heat. What is tasted is dryness. So all of the human senses that we have, Jesus has given to us in teaching so that we would understand what it means to be separated from your creator. The opposite side of that is what's defined as Abraham's bosom. And again, we only have that here in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now, Jesus has been teaching some parables. There is discussion amongst all the commentators. Is Jesus just giving this teaching and instruction as another parable, or is he talking about a real person? And the question that that gets brought up is because he names this man Lazarus for us and all the other parables, he doesn't give a specific name. So that's what makes us think that he's talking about a real circumstance and real individuals. So verse 19 says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And again, being rich is not bad. What he is conveying to us in this teaching is think about a human being that has everything that they need in this world. That's the image that you're to have in your brain. And then contrast that with, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus 
full of stores, sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Do you see the contrast? You can see it's in this world. You can see a human being who has all the blessings that we would define materially, materially in this world, and another human being who is empty of all of those blessings and is tormented in their physical flesh. That's the description that Jesus is giving to us. So, verse 22 says the beggar died, so Lazarus dies. He was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And nowhere else are we told that we are carried by angels or anything like that. But there's a description there that here Lazarus has a relationship with his creator. And in the moments that his physical torment is over with, God has messengers there standing by to carry him to a place of paradise, which is Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So this is when it gets super weird. So is this literal? Is this just teaching point from Jesus? I don't know. But Jesus has given us this description of the Old Testament shield. And in the Old Testament shield, you have Abraham and his faithful descendants, those who have a relationship with the Almighty God on one side of Sheol. And then there's this gulf, a deep pit that nobody can pass. And on the other side is those who are in torment, not peace, not paradise, but all the descriptions of torment that we have. And we're told that they can see each other. Super weird. Don't you think that would mess up paradise a little bit? And here the rich man is crying across the gulf to Abraham because he sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus. Do you think Abraham ever got sick and tired of any of these conversations going back and forth? Again, it's, just, it's weird to think about. So that's why I really think that this is Jesus communicating to us an insight to the realm of the dead, but also a powerful insight to the realm of the living, which we are in. So, verse 24, it says, He, so the rich man who is in torment, he, he cries and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may just dip the tip of his finger in water and come over here and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. And now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us, there is, this, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Permanent, eternal separation is what is being defined. Even if there was a desire, it is impossible to pass back and forth. Those who took satisfaction in their earthly comforts received their reward and their good things in the flesh. 
But even those, if, if you were not blessed with good things in the flesh, but you were tormented in the flesh and in relationship with God, you will be comforted in the future. Verse 27, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. All right, if you can't send him to me, fine. Then I want you, just like Samuel came up from the dead, to be a voice to Saul. I want you to cause Lazarus, Abraham, to ascend and go be a voice to my father's house. I don't want my brothers here is the insight that we are given. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them that they also, uh, lest they also come to this place of torment. Man is sitting in reality. He is sitting in torment. I have brothers who are still in the land of the living. I do not want them to come here. I want them to get right. Please send Lazarus to them to be a voice to them. And what does Abraham say? Abraham said to him, they have Moses and they got Elijah. They have the prophets. Let them hear them. Now listen to the teaching of Jesus. He's talking to the living. He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders that think that they have it all right. They're pursuing a relationship with God through their religious tradition. They're doing what Saul did. They're conducting all of their religious business and living their life according to their own, and they have no real relationship with the Father. So this is Jesus trying to wake them up. Whose voice do you have? You have the Word of God. You have in your hands the voice of Moses, the voice of the prophets, the voice of God's Son, the voice of his disciples. We have God's voice preserved for us. And we're, the instruction that our master is giving to us is listen to this voice. Not any other kind of, any other religious tradition that teaches you to pursue another voice other than God, run from it. You do not have to come to me as pastor to have a relationship with God. We have open communion here every single week because we are told as often as we gather together that each of us, Individually and corporately, we are to remember the body and the blood of our Savior. But it's not for me to come to you and have, are you a member of this church? Are you a member of the body of Christ? Have you done A, B, and C? Are you worthy to take this? We're told that the instruction is that you need to have a conversation with God. That if you're off in some fashion, have that conversation and remember that the Father sent his Son to tabernacle in this flesh to die for your sins. And the evidence of that is the resurrection of that broken body from the dead back into the flesh and all of his fullness and all of his holiness. That the blood that was shed as he was pierced on that cross, that we are told that that is the blood of the new covenant, the new promise, that you want to be cleansed from sin, all you have to do is come to Jesus. You don't come through a pastor, a priest. You don't come through a denomination. You don't come through lighting a candle or a religious tradition, paying money, fasting. You have free access. Free. Feel it? Free. No payment. 
nothing you can do, nothing God wants you to do. You have free I'm trying to think of all the other adjectives for this. God is zealously and passionately declaring to every single one of our souls daily, come. All you have to do is come through my son. You remember him. You remember his sacrifice. You remember his teachings. You remember his words. You remember what he says. You keep those things. You obey those things. You love him. You sacrifice yourself. You give up all that you think you are, all that you think that you want. You let go of everything. And that is the position where you find freedom. And I can give you the testimony just as a man who's lived for 46 years. I know the freedom of Christ. I know the bondage of sin. And I know what bondage looks like even following Jesus Christ. But I can give you testimony today. I today sit in absolute freedom in my relationship with Christ. And I love it. It's not based on how well I teach you. It's not based on how well I love my wife or how I serve my kids. It's not based on how good I do at my job, if I did everything I wanted to do or not. It's not based upon if I hurt your feeling. It's not based on anything. I know that I was created, and I know that I'm loved, and I know that I have his words. There is no better position in life than that because when I need answers, I don't have to do anything other than ask and sit back and wait in faith and trust. And that's what Jesus is communicating. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Verse 30, he says, no, Father Abraham. But if, if, if one goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Did Saul repent? One came up from the dead and told Saul what his issues were. Did Saul repent? Think of, the, think of who's saying this and the teaching that Jesus is giving. If one comes up from the dead, surely they will repent. But he, Abraham, says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded the one rise from the dead. Who rose from the dead? Jesus. Have you been persuaded of the truth that there is a creator of the heavens and the earth? Have you been persuaded that he created you and that he loves you? Have you been persuaded that he sent his eternal son in the flesh to die for every way that you've missed his holiness, every way that you've stained your soul, every way that you've disobeyed, every way that you've been Unholy, He sent his son to die for all of your actions, thoughts, past, present, and future. Do you believe it? Why do you believe it? I, get, I, I believe what I just said. Come on up, worship team. I believe what I just said because the tomb is empty. One has risen from the grave to bear testimony of the reality that everything he said, everything that he taught, everything that he did was true. 
the singular evidence that God is and that you are clean and that you will see him face to face in the future is that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Paul tells us if Jesus was still dead in the tomb, then we're all hopeless because then there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no restoration between a holy God and a broken man or woman. But the evidence that there is healing, the evidence that there is peace, that repentance is good, that repentance works, that God does speak, that you need answers, and that as you pursue him, that he will answer you. You don't have to go through any other religious weirdness, whether it's Christian weirdness or occult weirdness. You have free access to God's throne. So as we turn our attention to worship and communion, that's, it. That's the encouragement. If you're disturbed in some fashion, your soul is agitated in some fashion, come running to your father. He is there waiting with open arms through his son, through his Holy Spirit. And have that hope. There's coming a day when you close your eyes in this flesh, there's not fear, there is not torment, there is not dryness, there is not flame but there is an eternal paradise as you look into the eyes of the one who made you. So Lord, come have your way among us as we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.